Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. As we continue on in Genesis, I want to thank Kenny for his work of preparing and presenting last week. And as we got through this overview of Abraham's life, as we have kind of come to the end of that chapter, and you'll remember at the beginning of Genesis, we talked about how this book is really broken up into chapters dealing with main characters. So it's all about the generations of, the generations of. And so we've now moved into the promised one, the promised son is here. If you'll remember, Abraham and Sarah were promised by God. A covenant was made with them by God that he would be made into a great nation, that he would have a land, and that he would have a people. And it took until he was a 100 years old for that to come true, that he actually had a son that was the son of the promise. You'll also remember that he had a son before that because he kind of tried to take his own shortcuts. So you're going to hear some things again when it comes to Isaac and when it comes to Jacob and Esau that you've heard before. It's really interesting how history repeats itself, isn't it? Anybody noticed in your kids and grandkids some of the traits that you see in yourself? And sometimes we get to celebrate because they're the good traits about us, and sometimes we get to celebrate the bad traits in them, right? Anybody noticed in your own kids the thing that annoys you the most about them? Usually something about you that they picked up, right? There was an old um, back in the back in the eighties. Yes, I remember the eighties. And um, maybe some of you will remember this commercial. It was back in the "Just Say No" campaign, right? The "Just Say No" to drugs. Maybe you'll remember this one. The kid's sitting on his bed, and he he's sitting there, and uh, I don't know. He's probably listening to his Walkman or something like that, you know. And uh, his dad walks in. And he takes the headphones off, and the dad is holding this little wooden box. And he opens it up, and he pulls the marijuana out of it, right? He goes, what's this? And the kid goes, I learned it by watching you, Dad. How true is that of our lives? When it comes to our kids, when it comes to our grandkids, when it comes to the people around us, how true of, it, of us is that, that they learned it by watching us? And good news is Isaac, this promised one, seems to come along and actually learned a lot of lessons from his father Abraham. Abraham was the one who would constantly take God's uh, take God's word and believe it, but then try to find his shortcut, right? He takes Satan's shortcut to, to different things. Remember, uh, your promised uh, son will come, and so Sarah and Abraham decide, well, here, take Hagar. You can have Hagar, and then Ishmael is born, and that becomes a problem. He's promised that I will take care of you, that you will get a land, that you will have everything that you need, and you will be my people, right? I'm going to, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to protect you. So he goes into Egypt and gives his wife away. He goes to Abimelech, gives his wife away. You remember these things that he's always taking a shortcut around God's grace and mercy and God's plan. But it seems that Isaac learned from his father in that. But he also fails in other ways. And so as we look at the end of chapter 25, I want you to see kind of the beginning of this struggle that's going to happen from this point on. That as the people of God become a built people, a made people, a called out people that God is producing, they're going to come up against opposition for the rest of their existence. It's true today. It's true in what we are as the people of God, that we will constantly come up against opposition. But I also want you to see this. So that you might never say that God is unfair, I want you to see today in the text the beginning of this, really the germination of this idea that's going to be throughout Scripture. 
and into the New Testament is going to be proclaimed by Jesus and proclaimed by the Apostle Paul and proclaimed by the Apostle Peter. That's going to be lived out in the life of Israel and lived out in the life of the church. This idea that God himself is the one who works salvation from beginning to end. That there is none other. That our role in salvation is a reaction, not an action. That God, in His sovereign grace, pulls people out of darkness and brings them into light. That He brings us out of death into life. That in His sovereign will, He takes some and He saves them. And others, they get whatever they wanted, which was not God's way. See, we have a tendency to think God's not fair if He's choosing some and not others. But let's just admit it. Really what God's doing is He's allowing people to make their own choices. Isn't that ironic? In a day where everybody is saying, freedom of choice, freedom of choice, freedom of choice, and choice seems to always lead to death. The Bible bears that out. Adam and Eve, when left to their own choice, what did they choose? Sin. Even in their perfect state, they chose sin. And when left to our own devices, we wouldn't want God's blessings, would we? We would choose our own way, always leading to death. And the Bible bears this out over and over and over again. So today, we're going to talk about some hard things, but I want you to begin to see the the seed of this idea here in this story in Genesis chapter 25. So if you would, just follow along in your copy of God's Word as we look at God's salvation plan, His redemption plan, worked out in the lives of Isaac and specifically in Jacob and Esau here at the beginning of their lives. Verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and it was a miracle, wasn't it? And it's really interesting. We have very little information on Isaac and his life. We're going to have a few chapters. You have 13 chapters on Abraham waiting for the promise, very little on Isaac because the promise wasn't just about Isaac. Isaac was the beginning of the promise. The rest of the Bible is going to be how God works out that promise. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? Another way of translating this, why did I ever get pregnant in the first place? Literally what she's thinking, why did this happen to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called him Esau. Afterwards, the reason they called him Esau because that means red. Afterwards, His brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob, which really means heel grabber. Just a little aside, when I was a missionary kid in Africa, typically the way they named their kids is they would, we name kids usually before they're born. A lot of people, they come up with names, right? Like we name both of our girls while sitting in movie theaters, not paying attention to the trailers. So, you're welcome. Um, In Africa, the way they would name kids is they would wait two years sometimes to name their children until they saw their personalities. So you'd have like Chimwemwe, that means joy. 
That's beautiful, right? Mafuma, which means trouble. <laughs> Literally, we met a little two-year-old girl, and her name was Mafuma, which simply means trouble. So, uh, you know, think about that. They're, they're looking at the character traits of these children, and it's going to be borne out. And, and don't, don't miss this. It, it's still in our culture, and I'm a redhead, okay? It's still in our culture. Hairy, redheaded people, they're not looked too fondly on in our culture. That's been a thing for a long time, right? They're the malcontents. They're the people we don't... I mean, it's just the way it works. You ever heard it, the redheaded stepchild? Yeah, that's... I'm not even a stepchild, and sometimes you feel like it when you're a redhead. Here's Esau. He's the guy who follows after his passions. And here's Jacob. He's going to be the schemer and the planner. He's going to be the guy who sits in the tent and gets really close to mom so that he can figure out what to do next. And here they are, neither one of them having much good about them, even from the beginning. They're at war with one another from the beginning. There's nothing about them that shines as, wow, these guys are going to be excellent human beings. And it's even in their names. Now I want you to pay attention to this. He got married. Isaac got married when he was 40. His wife was barren. Sound familiar? Abraham and... Sarah went through the same thing, didn't they? Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. 20 years of waiting on the Lord. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. That sounds like a good family situation. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of the red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? He was hungry, and he's starving. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. These are the generations of Isaac. This is the beginning of the story that's supposed to lead us to the Messiah. Think about that. This is the beginning of the story. From Isaac's line will come the Messiah. And this is the start we get. God is gracious. Amen? That's what we want to see. We want to see that from the beginning of this story, God has been working out His grace, His power. It's all of Him and not of us. Let's look at this. The sovereign grace of God. And what do I mean by the sovereign grace of God? What I mean is that God, from the beginning of time, from before the foundations of the world, the Scriptures will tell us, has been working out His plan of redemption. That God, before you and I did anything good or bad, before there was anything good in us that He could look forward and say, oh, those people, they're going to figure it out. I'm going to bring them into the fold. No, before any of that, God was working His grace by calling some out of darkness and bringing them into light. That Jesus would come and He would die on the cross not to just make salvation available to people, but to save people from their sins. And that's good news. That's the good news of the Gospel, that God has been working out this plan from the beginning. You can read about it throughout Scripture. Even 
some of the passages that we love the most, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The grace and the faith all comes as a gift from God. God acts in grace. We react in faith. But it's all a gift. Scripture also tells us that He grants repentance. Think about that. God is the one who's moving to not just give grace, but that grace draws us into repentance from our sins so that we can believe. He's the one who calls us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Jesus says that you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and your your fruit should abide. The Spirit must draw people in order for us to come into the family. This is part of the great good news of the gospel. Ephesians 1 tells us that even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He, and this is the word we all hate, He predestined, and all that simply means is He destined before, right? That's all it means. We get really, ah, when we hear the word predestined, we're all like, I don't know what to do with that. All it means is He destined before. When was God? Isn't that a weird question? When was God? Always? Was God before? So if God was acting before, what was he doing? Pre? If God was acting in power and coming up with a plan, what was he doing? Predestining? (laughs) Does that make sense? If God was simply sitting in heaven not doing anything, then the word predestined wouldn't make any sense. But what we know is that God was God and has always been God. And this plan of redemption was not just something he came up with on a whim. This is something he's been doing. It's part of who he is. And it says that in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. This idea of God working his sovereign grace out is meant to cause us to praise him. Ephesians 2, if you go back there, it says that the reason he did all of this is so none of us could boast. We can't sit here and go, I did it. I was good enough. But instead, that he might get all of the glory. Romans 8, everybody loves Romans 8, right? Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. We love this. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Amen, right? For those who are called according to his purpose, for those, oh, this is the next verse. What do we do with this then? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. This is what he's been doing. And if you sit there and you read that passage and you say, okay, well, he knew what was going to happen. That's why he predestined. That's what foreknew meant. Did God know all things for all time? Quick question. If God is eternal and his knowledge is perfect, did he know all things for all time? Okay. Has God also been all-powerful for all time? So you can't put those things against each other, can you? Because they're just part of who he is. But you can give one the primary place. Do we give power the primary place? Because if he's going to do anything, it's got to be because of his power, right? So he's powerful. His power to save is what we celebrate. Amen? That's why we exist as a body of believers is because God is powerful to save. And as you look at this sovereign grace and you begin to see it unfold throughout the pages of Scripture and you begin to grasp it just in the slightest, 
your first reaction is going to be, but what about my freedom? My question for you is, what have you done with your freedom? (laughs) What has humanity done with our freedom over and over and over again? Right now, we've got tons of freedom in America, don't we? What are we doing with it? Are we using it to honor God? Is that not proof, once again, that we need God to move in power even in our freedom? We don't need God to affirm our will. We need God to change our will. That's what we need. That's what God does. That's the good news of the gospel, that He does not leave us in our will to our own devices, but pulls us out of that into His glorious grace. That's the life of Isaac. That's the life of Jacob. That's the life that's borne out here in Scripture. So we see this sovereign grace, and I I want you to see in these verses the beginning of this idea of what sovereign grace teaches us, of what God's sovereign working of salvation, His plan of redemption, specifically for me, specifically for you, all of His people all together, what does it teach us? First of all, it teaches us that God will be faithful even in our failures. Isn't that good news? That God's going to be faithful even in our failures? He did not look at us and go, that guy right there, he's got it together, I'm going to save him. If that was the case, then every time I'd fail, what would I have to do? I'd have to stop and just wonder, did I fail too much this time that he's going to stop loving me? That his grace isn't sufficient? Because he only gave me enough grace to kind of fill in the gap of my goodness, between my goodness and his holiness. Maybe if I'm just not as good as I used to be, there's not enough grace for me. But if, as the Bible teaches us, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, if, as the Bible teaches us, that we were in the darkness and in the kingdom of death, slaves to sin and death, and He's the one who brought us out of that, then His grace is sufficient for my every day. His grace is sufficient to save me, and His grace is sufficient to sustain me. And this begins to be borne out in the life of Isaac. Look at this. Isaac lived out his father's faith and his father's failures. What you're going to find in the next few pages is Isaac is a man of great faith. But he's also a man who makes all the dumb mistakes that we make in this world. And yet he's never outside of the grace and the promises of God. He never finds himself on the outs. He always finds himself in the grace and the promises of God. Have you failed? Like, what time did you wake up today? Because I've failed a couple of times since I woke up this morning. Anybody else? In your thought, your thought life, maybe in your anger at another driver, maybe with your kids where you're like, come on, we're going to be late again. I don't know. Is there anything you've failed in yet today? His grace is sufficient. And the fact that He is the one who gives grace, He's the one who who exercises that grace, that it's not dependent on me, but it's all dependent on Him, is the good news of the Gospel. God was faithful to Abraham, so we can know that God is going to be faithful to Isaac, and Isaac can know that too. God's going to be faithful to Isaac, God's going to be faithful to Israel, God's going to be faithful to us, His people. Sovereign grace teaches us that no matter how much we fail, if we are the people of God, His grace is sufficient. That's the good news. Don't you need that? Don't you need that security? 
That's why sovereign grace is such a great joy to the believer when we begin to embrace that it is not based on my merit, but based on his love, his mercy, his character. Oh, there's freedom. It's not freedom to go sin more. The Apostle Paul would say, may that never be. But there is freedom now to rest in him, that I'm not trying to prove myself to him over and over and over again, trying to make sure I have just enough good works propped up that he can fill in the gap. You you know what that's called, right? That's called Mormonism. Mormons teach grace, but their grace is you do all of these good deeds, you do all of these good things, you keep all of these rules, and God is holy, and He fills in the rest with His grace. That is not what the Gospel teaches. The Gospel teaches us that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and He made you alive together with Christ. He's made you righteous. And now all of the good deeds are acted out in faith. That we trust Him. They're not acted out to prop us up. They're acted out to demonstrate that we belong to Him. Isaac's life would be a life of faith and failure. Jacob's life would be a life of faith and failure. But never would they be outside the grace and the promises of God. The sovereign grace of God teaches us that God will be faithful even in our failures. The sovereign grace of God here also teaches us to trust God's power, not our own. Look back at the text and you'll see that Isaac runs into the exact same problem that Abraham and Sarah ran into. A promise that you're going to be part of this great nation. From your line is going to come this promised one that I've been looking forward to for 12 chapters now. Actually, 25 chapters in Genesis, we've been waiting for this promised one to come. We still have a lot of pages to go until that happens. But Isaac gets to be really right there at the forefront of all of that. And what happens? His wife can't have a baby. That is problematic to a plan that is determined by babies being born. So what does he do? What does he do? Look at the text. He prayed. He didn't do what Abraham did. He didn't do what Sarah did. They didn't go look for a shortcut or another way of doing it. No, he prayed. And the terminology there means he prayed fervently. And if you look at the text, he prayed for 20 years for God to be faithful. He trusted God's plan and he prayed. He didn't take matters into his own hands. See, sovereign grace teaches us that we can trust God no matter how long it takes. Philippians tells us, the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. It's not going to happen right now. It's going to happen in the future. And we can be We can trust Him. We can trust Him to continue praying for that work to happen in our lives. How often do we get frustrated at God for not doing things right now? Anybody ever get frustrated at God for not doing things right now? Yeah, I do. But sovereign grace teaches me to take a step back and say, wait, there's a bigger plan at play here, and it's been in play long before I was even born. (laughs) And it will be in play long after I die. And if I can step back for just a second, I can trust Him to work out that plan. I'm just a piece of the puzzle. I'm not the whole puzzle. This thing does not hold together on whether I fail, whether I succeed, whether I get what I want, whether I don't get what I want. It all holds together by God's grace and His power and His will. So Isaac prays. 
Isaac is patient. 20 years of patience. You ever notice how the things you have to wait the longest for are the things that become the most valuable? Have you noticed that in your life? The things you have to wait the longest for, you either learn that you don't need them or when you do get them, they become the things you love the most. We live in such a consumer culture that we're able to just swipe and get what we want. It used to be you had to save to get what you wanted. Right? Now, you just swipe to get what you want and hope you can pay it off later. Patience under the sovereign grace of God allows us to enjoy all of the things that he does give us. Now, Isaac Isaac doesn't do a great job here. Okay? Rebecca doesn't do a great job here. They, they struggle with this because they take the gifts of God and they've been told, Rebecca gets told, the younger one is the one you've got to watch. The younger one is the one who's going to have the promise. The younger one from his seed is going to come the Messiah. So she goes and she says, I'm going to love the younger one. Isaac loves the older one because of his belly. He likes to eat what Esau brings in. I just ask you, when you're patient with the Lord, make sure we're also taking the gifts not as the point. When He gives us the things that we're patient for, they shouldn't become such treasures to us that we lose sight of God's plan and His purposes. Don't pray and be patient, and then when God grants you what you needed or what you wanted, go, all right, done now, and lose sight of what God's actually doing. That's the danger here, and that's a danger that they fall into. But there is this immediate reaction when God does grant them what they prayed for and what they know they need. There's a praise here because the delay in God working gets us to the point of we know the only way that happened was God's powerful hand. How many times have you been in the situation where you've been praying for something and as soon as you stop striving for it and you stop, you stop and say, okay, God, if this never happens, I'm going to trust you. And immediately he goes... Bingo! Doing it for you. Why? So you can give praise to His glorious grace. Because He's the only one who could accomplish that. The sovereign grace of God teaches us to trust God's power, not our own. The sovereign grace of God teaches us that God reverses the favoritism of mankind. This is what the prophecy says here in chapter 25. Look back at verse 23. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Here she is going, Why am I even pregnant? I'm sure some of you ladies have been there, especially if you had summer pregnancies, where around August 15th you were like, Why did I do this? And you're blaming your husband because he wasn't to blame. And, uh, you know, but I don't know about you. I know when, when Kessid was born, my sweet, demure wife who... Um, Every bit of everything I was scared of about her came out. We're sitting there, and she's in labor, and it, the words, like the, the doctor stopped and backed off. Let's just put it that way, because had not seen this side. A monster came out of my wife. I did that to her, and I'm forever sorry for that. But what we learn in this moment is she's going, why is this happening to me? This warring is going on. The idea here in the language is that you could see the babies fighting inside the womb. Like that's how violent this is. They're kicking at each other within the womb. They're going at it in the womb. And they will go at it for their entire lives. 
And this is a prophecy of looking forward to what's happening. And if you notice, what God says here is he says, I'm going to reverse what you think is the proper way for things to happen. I'm going to reverse the cultural order of the day. I'm going to reverse the norm because I want everybody to know it's not by your position. It's not by blood. It's not by what you think the cultural norm should be and what's fair and unfair that I'm going to do my work, that I'm going to show my grace. It's not going to be by any human institution that I'm going to determine where my grace lies. It's going to be by my sovereign choice. And he does this over and over and over again. The older serves the younger. It happened with Abel and Cain, didn't it? Cain was the older. Who was the one that was favored by God? Abel. It happens here. It happened with Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael was the older. Isaac is the one of the promise. Happens with Rachel and Leah. It happens with Joseph and his brothers. Over and over and over again, God is reversing this course. Romans 9 puts it this way. He does this not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. This whole idea of the older will serve the younger it all comes down to this, to prove that God is the one who saves. It's the whole idea. So that at no point could Jacob go, yeah, it's because I was the older, I got the birthright. In fact, you go so far as this, Jacob's a scoundrel and steals the birthright and God still works glory and salvation and redemption out of that sin. Isn't that good news for us? Isn't it good news that God's still working salvation for sinners? I don't know, that makes me happy. To know that from the beginning God has been working salvation for sinners because I was a sinner. That's my whole identity. I was a self-righteous sinner. I was a selfish, self-centered, self-righteous sinner. And God is working salvation. God does not show favoritism based on human culture or designs. Salvation is all of grace, not of our ability, not of our merit, not of what we deserve. Salvation is by faith for the sinner. All of the self-righteous, selfish, self-centered ones, and all the self-indulgent ones. And that's what we learn about these two guys. Jacob is the self-centered, selfish guy. He's sitting there scheming, like, how can I get the birthright? How can I get the birthright? He's looking for Satan's shortcut all the time. God's already promised. He's prophesied before he was even born, based on nothing good or bad that Jacob had done, that the birthright was going to be his, that he was going to be the one through whom the Messiah would come. And what does he do? How can I scheme to steal this from my brother? He wasn't willing to wait on the Lord. And yet still God works by His sovereign grace to change and transform Jacob throughout his life. That's good news for us. Esau was the one who was a slave to his own passions, a slave to his own desires, a slave to his self-indulgence. A guy who walks in and goes, I'm so hungry, I could die. Give me some lentil soup. Like, I cannot fathom any moment in history where lentil soup would be worth $5, much less a birthright. And yet he's willing to quickly, like without thought, yes, soup, otherwise I will die. There is nowhere on the planet that lentil soup, given in the moment, has call someone to live instead of dying. That just isn't going to happen. 
you'll probably choke on it. But the fact of the matter is, he's willing to sell it all just for that because he's a passion. He's a slave to his own passions. God is not thwarted by our own favoritism, by human favoritism. He does not show favoritism based on human culture. And even when we, with Isaac and Rebecca here showing their own favoritism, taking sides, taking a son, God's plan is not going to be thwarted by that either. Because it seems that if, if Isaac takes Esau, then Esau is the one who's going to get all the blessing, right? But even God's not going to be thwarted. And he even uses the sins of people for his own purposes. He takes people like Pharaoh and uses his sin for his purposes. And he takes you and I and he changes our wills and he changes us. That's the good news of the gospel is that God is sovereign. Isaac and Rebekah had trusted God to provide them with children, but they did not prepare their children based on God's word. Let me just take this as a side real quick. God has blessed you with children. Take the time to prepare them to be the people God has designed them to be. They were told before they were born, Jacob's the one, the younger is the one that you need to be preparing. Isaac, a man of faith, takes his older instead. He should have been preparing his older to not rest in his own passions, but because he was a man of his own passions, he couldn't do it. His sin and his favoritism led to destruction. Isaac and Rebekah did not follow God's example, but showed a destructive favoritism to their children. God, but God was not stopped from his plans and his purposes. God's not going to be stopped by our sin. God's not going to be stopped by evil actions in New York or Virginia or any other state. God's will will be done. He will accomplish His purposes. He will pour out judgment where judgment needs to come, and He will pour out grace where He chooses. This is the good news of the gospel. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy, God says in Exodus chapter 33. God's reversing the favoritism of mankind. God does not show grace based on behavior, but based on His will. And that is really the only hope we have. Think about that for just a second. The only hope we have is that God is not showing His grace based on favoritism. Because I have nothing good within me that would cause God to look at me and say, that's the guy I'm going to save. And if you can look in your own heart, look in all of your life and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was the one. I was the one. I was going to be a good team player for God. All-star team for God. Then you don't understand what salvation is. You don't understand what the Bible says about salvation. The first, the first reality for us as believers is to understand where we came from. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That we weren't seeking after God. God was seeking after us. That's the good news of the gospel. Jacob and Esau were both scoundrels. Neither one of them was a good guy. Neither one of them had anything good within them. One a slave to his passions, the other a slave to his selfishness. Jacob even takes Satan's shortcut, and yet he's the one God pours out favor. He wants the blessing of God, but he wouldn't wait for the blessing of God. And I want to make sure you understand this. As people of God, as children of God, as those saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, we have great blessing awaiting us. And God does desire to pour out goodness and blessing in us and on us. And you have the cross as evidence of that. That God would be willing to 
to kill His own Son on a cross that we might have life and have salvation. That before the foundation of the world, the cross was not plan B, but it was always the plan. That He was crucified in the mind of God before the foundation of the world to save those God would call out of darkness into light. And if that's true, which the Bible bears it out as true, then we need to understand this. God will bless us as His children. Often in spite of us. Often in spite of us. How many times has that happened in your life? Like you tried to pray like the really hard prayers. You even put the bumper sticker on your car. Pray hard. I don't have any idea what that means, but pray hard. You're like sweating in your prayers. Yeah, you're just like you pray hard and and God blesses you, right? And then there's other times where you pray hard and God does nothing, it seems, but make you wait. Isn't that grace in and of itself, God making you wait? That you learn that there's no formula that you can follow that makes you seem good before God, but instead He's the one who's good. You ever thought about waiting in that way? That God making us wait is actually improving over and over again. You can't manipulate me. I'm the sovereign of the universe. And then when He gives us what we need, He actually gives us what we need, not what we want. And usually it's so much better than we could have ever imagined. That's what God does here, but hear me on this. Jacob's problem here is he took the shortcut. A shortcut his father wasn't willing to take, but a shortcut he takes towards God's promises and towards God's blessing. He still gets the blessing of God, but he's not free to enjoy the blessings of God for decades. Let's not fall into that trap. If we're people of God, God has mercy and grace and blessing to pour out on us. Let's not think we can manipulate God into giving to us by doing the right things or trying to do ten things in a row right and then God might bless us. No, don't, don't, don't think of God as the vending machine that if I just keep popping in these quarters, it will give me what I want. No, God is more gracious than that. He often does it in spite of us, but He wants us to enjoy the blessings He pours out on us. And that's only possible when we walk in His ways by His grace. God reverses the way the world works. Because God is not bound by what humans deem to be fair. He is just and righteous. He is fair. He's the one who defines fairness. So we have a tendency to look at God in these moments and go, that's not really fair for Esau. But I just want to ask you this question. Did Esau care? (laughs) Just think about that for just a second. We go, this isn't really fair for Esau. And have you ever noticed the times you tend to go, well, that's not really fair for them. Most of the time, the people we think it's unfair for don't really care. <laughs> They're not thinking that way. We just Something just sits wrong with us. And we just wouldn't want it to happen to us. So we begin to pre- project that onto other people. And we're like, that's not fair for them. We're like, have you asked them if they think it's fair? Here's Esau. He didn't care. Why? He got lentil soup. He didn't care. He wasn't sitting there going, oh man, birthright. Why? Because he was a slave to his passions. He was a slave to his belly. That's why the Bible says things like that. Their belly is their destruction. This is the reality that people who are lost and outside the family of God, unless God's grace moves, they don't know what they're missing. And they're not missing it. It's been said this way, that... God elects us in order to eliminate all boasting, all self-reliance, and all human pride. That's what G.K. Beale says us. 
says of us. And then Horatio Bonar says, there can be no grace where there is no sovereignty. But then there's this reality. Ian DeGuid says it. The process of election, God's sovereign grace, always works. Those who remain outside God's kingdom, who have not received his election and calling to become part of his people, do not lose something that they sought to have, but rather something that they counted of no value. It can be put this way. When somebody, and I hate to say it, but when somebody ends up in hell, they got exactly what they wanted. That's the way sin works. That's the way our sin nature works. When people end up in hell, they end up there because that's what they wanted. They never wanted anything different. They spent an entire life wanting to be separate from God. They weren't seeking after God. The Bible makes that clear. But also, they didn't know the treasure that is Jesus Christ. So when they're in hell, it's, it's suffering and it's anguish. But it's also exactly not just what they deserve because of their sin. But God didn't take away something they were wanting. He gave them over to the desires of their hearts. Romans chapter 1. Our job. A. As people who are in the family of God is to never think so highly of ourselves as to think that there was something special about us, within us, that caused God to go, they're going to be great team members. No. God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. I happen to be one of those foolish things. All of us who are in the body of Christ are those foolish things to confound the wise. That's why the whole world looks at us like we're crazy. Because we're trusting a God we can't see waiting on a day that we've been waiting for for 2,000 years when we're going to see Him face to face. The foolish things confound the wise. So one, we can't think of ourselves too highly. It's to kill all boasting in us. But the second thing is this. I don't know who the elect of God are. I don't know who those He's calling into salvation are. But I do know this. If God is sovereign in His grace calling people out of darkness into His marvelous light, working before the foundation of the world to call people out and to prepare this redemption plan. Not only is He the God of the ends, who will be in heaven and who will be in hell, He's also the God of the means. What do I mean by that? He's determined that our prayer life and our evangelism is the way He will save people. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, if I knew, if there was a way to know who the elect are, I would love that, Right? who the people God is going to call out of darkness into light. He said if they had a yellow like line painted on their back, he would just run around the city lifting up people's shirts and just preaching to those people. Right? But there's no way to know that. I've always said it'd be nice if there was a scanner in the back. It'd make my job a lot easier. It'd make our jobs a lot easier. But we are called to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus to everyone. Leave salvation to God. But God has called us out of darkness into light to proclaim how great He is. So the question is not, well, what about those people who have never heard? Because there are no innocent people on the planet before God. The question is more for us, why would God save anyone? Here in this picture of Jacob and Esau, neither one of these guys deserves to be the child of the promise, do they? A scoundrel and a guy who would sell his birthright within the kingdom 
for lentil stew. Let's not be too hard on that guy. Because how often do we sell out our birthright? How often do we sell out our position in the kingdom for lesser blessings? Let's be people who understand that the salvation that Jacob needed is the salvation that we need. Left to ourselves, we would never desire the blessings of God. God is fair, He is just, and He is righteous. God's will through Jacob was the redemption of mankind through the Messiah. Through His line would come the one we know as Jesus, who would save His people from their sins. God's will through Esau was judgment. The people of Edom, this nation that would constantly butt up against Israel, be one of their worst enemies for most of their existence. But Esau wouldn't complain about that because left to himself, he would desire lentil stew, not the blessings of God. Because he was a slave to his own passions. So the question for us today is this. Are you relying on your own merit or on God's grace? Are we, as the people of God, trusting God for our salvation and trusting God to get us to heaven, but wondering why we don't get the blessings of God? Maybe if I just do these ten things right today, He'll bless me. Oh, then we would understand grace is much more sufficient and much more glorious and much more powerful than that. That the grace of God that's been working from eternity past to call us out of darkness into marvelous light, call us out of death into life, is the grace in which we stand now. That it's not based on our ability or merit. No, we rest on Jesus' merit. Jesus' ability and His finished work of salvation. This is the beauty of amazing grace. Believer, hear me today. God's grace was poured out in your life to bring you to faith and repentance so that you would bear good fruit. You have no ability within yourself to bear good fruit. No spiritual fruit will come of you that will be eternal except in the grace of God. John 15 bears that out. But also I want you to know this. In the Apostle Peter makes it clear to us also that without him we have no hope of actually pursuing and actually keeping the laws of God. If you're here today and you want to live a righteous life, the only way to do that is understanding the grace of God. So he would tell us in Second Peter chapter 1, after he lists off what godliness looks like, he comes back, he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. He says, confirm that you are called by God. Confirm that His sovereign grace rests on you, that He's elected you to bring you out of death into life. Confirm that, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. You want to know that you're a believer? Look at the actions that are produced by your faith. Look at the faith that's produced by God's grace and the actions that flow from that faith. When you read the Bible, do you read the Bible and say, well, that's well and good. Maybe next Tuesday I'll try to get to that. Or does His Spirit convict you to bring you to repentance, more faith, walking in His grace, obedience to His Word? And if you're here today and you say, look, I really like my life. And I know it might not be right, and God might have something better for people, but I really like my life. Here's what I want to say. Fear God and believe. Fear God. You may not fear much, but fear God. 
Because He is the one who is from eternity past to eternity future, the one who stays the same, never changes. And His grace is sufficient for you, but His judgment is something you do not want to experience. I want you to understand that God's judgments are fair, even if you don't think they're fair. And His grace, His grace is fair because He poured out His wrath, His judgment towards sin for those of us who believe. He poured out His wrath towards sins on Jesus. So when Jesus died on the cross, He didn't just die to make salvation available. He took the wrath of God against my sin, against those of us who would believe in Jesus. All of our sins, He he placed them on Himself so that you and I who trust in Jesus could have life. Run to Jesus. And understand that that running is an act of faith brought on by His grace. And revel in the fact that God loves you enough that you have heard that He is the one who saves. Let's pray. Father, I pray that today we would rest in Your amazing grace. That we would go forth in Your amazing grace as trophies of Your amazing grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close now, we're going to stand and we're going to